Father, we trust you this morning. Spirit, would you renew our minds, renew our hearts, renew our lives and our behaviors to model what Paul is telling this group, this community here, of what it means to walk out in faith your love to each other and to the outside world. God, we need you to meet us this morning. We're asking in desperation and weakness that you would guide our hearts and our minds. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to be transformed into your likeness. Pray that you would do it. We pray it in your name. Amen. Uh, well, let me say this to parents. If you got your kids in here and uh, you're not used to your kids in here, that's okay. Like, if they need to wiggle or talk or whatever, like, that's not going to bother me. It won't bother the rest of the people in here. So feel the freedom to not be worried about your kids being too noisy. Right, kids? Like, just be loud. No, nobody wants to be loud. They're obeying their parents. Yeah, I heard in the back there. Okay, cool. Um, well, I have been out of town for the last couple of weeks, in and out of town. And two weeks ago, I was in Philadelphia. And I was there for a meeting. There were a handful of pastors, about 25 of us, come into town um, with a discipleship ministry called See Jesus. And this specific group, we were spending about a day and a half to learn on what, what does it actually mean to have a community of prayer in the midst of your church. And so I'm excited to share that stuff with you as it continues to come down uh, the pipe here in our community. But that first night, we were gathered up in uh, a small room, and we were in a circle before we ate, and we're just kind of going around before we prayed, and we're introducing one another. And we're telling each other where we're from. There were guys from Texas and California um, and from Ohio and all over the country. And we got about halfway of just explaining who we are, introducing ourselves, and how did you get connected with this ministry called See Jesus? What did that look like for you? And we're kind of going around the circle. And about halfway, we get to this older gentleman. His name's Colin. And you could tell right away Colin um, was not from here because he talked in an Irish accent. And it was, yes, it was amazing. You could just listen to Colin all day long, and he's sharing this story about why he's here in America. And he doesn't really sound like that. But it, you can imagine if that was a good actress, yeah, an Irish actress. He's from Northern Ireland, and he shared about how God had met him through the community of See Jesus and why he was here. And after he finished sharing, it was like, we just need to stop and pray. Let's just stop the meeting. It was just not only his accent, but what he shared was uh, unbelievable. And then we continued to share throughout the story, uh, throughout, throughout the circle. And um, it's interesting because as we were kind of all going around, and we all had a little different dialect or accents, but when we got to Colin, it was clear he was not from here. And what Paul is going to suggest in our text this morning is that when people follow Jesus, when you make a decision to follow Jesus, you should sound different to your surrounding community. You shouldn't sound the same. People should recognize from what Paul is going to give us as a, a list of things that, man, there's something different about you. Not different in a strange kind of uh, way where you can't interact with people, but different in the sense of like they sense your kindness and your care for them. Just like we could easily point out that Colin wasn't from the States. Do people know that you interact with that, man, there's something different about the way you live your life? That's where Paul is going to take us this morning. And he's really going to challenge uh, the people in Colossae, this small group that he's writing to and how it's getting translated to us right now today in the seats we sit in. Two things he's going to kind of argue in this kind of idea in Colossians 3. One, that you should sound like where you're from. 
It would be different if Colin didn't sound like he was from Ireland. You should sound like you're from, so where are you from if you're a follower of Jesus and do you sound like that? That's the first thing that he's going to say. And then the second thing Paul is going to say is that your surrounding community should see that you're different. You should sound different. You should act different if you're a follower of Jesus. So one, do you sound like where you're from? And then two, does the surrounding community know that you're different? I was in Philadelphia two weeks ago. Last week, I was in Colorado with my son, uh, my 17-year-old, and we were at a camp that my wife and I used to run. It was hosted at Colorado State University. And in the midst of this camp, we used the cafeteria. And so we walk in. There's about 150 people at this camp. And so you can imagine that the staff at Colorado State, it's the summer, and it's pretty dead until we bring 150 people through the doorway. And one of the stations at this cafeteria was a Mongolian grill, and it was, it was the best station, right? Like, I just kept gravitating back towards this in the midst of all the other options in the cafeteria. And the first day, I noticed, there was about four people working behind in the Mongolian grill, and uh, the first day, you could see there was a shift leader. I found out his name was Jeff, but he was different. He was smiling, he was kind, he was caring, he was serving people this food. When some of the other stations, they were flustered, they were stressed because we're bringing all these people through the door, but there was something different about Jeff, and you could see it. Our coworkers, we were talking about, man, this guy's different. Like, he's smiling, he's caring, he's taking care of people well. And throughout the week, the last day of the week, I began a dialogue with Jeff, and I said, man, there's something different about you, Jeff. And he goes, well, I know what your group's about because he knew we were a Christian group, and he goes, I love Jesus too. And it was just clear. You could just see it. He didn't have to say anything, but the way he loved people was clear that he was different. He knew where he was from. My wife played softball in college a long time ago at the University of Arizona. Bear down, everyone. <laughs> and the Wildcats, the ladies, they just made the College World Series. That's right, eight teams left. ASU's not in it yet. They might make it. They have a game today. If they lose, they're out, which is what I'm praying for. But anyway, <laughs> she played college softball. She came in her freshman year not knowing Jesus. A teammate on her uh, explained who Jesus was. And God was doing all these things behind the scenes to prepare her heart to understand the message, the good news of who Jesus was, and that she could accept it and have her life changed. The first month of college, she decided to accept Jesus into her life, and her life looked dramatically different. Well, there were six other freshmen that came in in her class, which is a fairly large freshman class for a softball team. And throughout those four years, at some point in each one of those four years, because my wife's life began to change, she used to look this way, and now she looks this way because of Jesus, every one of those teammates said, what is it? Like, there's something different about the way you are living. I knew who you were on your recruiting trip. And you want to follow Jesus. It didn't, no, it did not look that way at all. And now you're doing these things, saying these things. Something has changed in you, and I want to know what it is. Because I keep going after things in life and keep hitting a ceiling. And my wife had the opportunity to share with six of her teammates at different points throughout those four years what it meant to know Jesus and follow him. This is where Paul is going to take us this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can open up, if it's not open, to Colossians chapter 3. And just to kind of uh, give you some context, if you're joining us for the first time, we're kind of halfway through the book of Colossians. And Paul, what he's doing in chapter 3 is he's really unpacking what he says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Let's just read it to remind ourselves 
what's going on here. He says in Colossians 1, 9, and 10, he says, And so, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, as so to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. This is what Paul's saying. He said, I've heard that you've made a decision for Jesus. And what I want you to know is that I've been praying for you every day. I haven't ceased that you would be filled with the knowledge and all of his spiritual wisdom and understanding as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And then what he's going to do is he's going to unpack what that actually walking looks like in chapter 3. Jim reminded us last week as we looked at the first four verses of Colossians 3 is to seek and to set to seek and to set after Jesus. Those are two things that we need to be doing. If we're called to follow Jesus, we have to be intentional with our minds and our bodies and what we're doing. It just doesn't happen overnight. You have to seek Jesus and you have to set your life on him. And Jim encouraged us that he said, you will always look like the thing you look at. You'll always look like the thing you look at. And so you have to turn your gaze to Jesus, not to all these things that would be a distraction to your culture, but to seek and to set your mind on Christ. As you do that, you will start to look like him. And everything we're about to unpack in verses 5 through 14, putting off the old and putting on the new flow out of verses 1 through 4, that your life is hidden in Christ, that he actually is your life. And this is what it looks like to put off and put on the old. And what Paul is saying is he's saying you're either dead in your sin or you're dead to your sin. You're either dead in your sin, you're a slave to your sin, there's no hope for you, or you are dead to your sin. You've been set free. Now live like you're free. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 uh, gives this example of being dead in sin. He says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses... In the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. So before coming into that relationship with Jesus, my wife was enslaved to sin. Because of her life, her choices, she didn't know Jesus. And so she had no choice but to do these things that were an affront to God. But when Jesus rescued her, then she was no longer a slave to sin, but set free. And we see there in Colossians chapter 3, verse 6, after Paul gives us this list of what we need to put to death, he says in verse 6, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. We need to just talk about that. Let's just unpack that just very briefly, that, that phrase wrath, because uh, in our culture today, it seems like people swing to one extreme and the other. They're all about God's wrath and that he's kind of this uh, person that's putting shame and he, he hates you and these kinds of things, or they don't talk about God's wrath at all, almost like this God of the Bible just loves you. And actually, we need to understand what actually the text is meaning. What does Paul mean when he says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The original language, this word wrath, is uh, almost the same word as indignant. And it's this feeling or showing of anger or annoyance by what is perceived as unfair treatment. So God is frustrated 
because of what is unfair. God is uh, not happy with what happened in Texas last week. He's not okay with that. Because of that, the wrath of God is coming. He's going to do away with our imperfections and our sin. And we need to be careful that we don't project the human emotion of anger onto God. Because for us, we can think like we, we fly off the handle at certain things like real quick, right? We get really angry, want to prove ourselves to somebody else, but that's not the anger of God or the wrath of God. So Paul says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. What is actually his wrath? We, can't, we cannot uh, project kind of our human understanding of wrath, like, like God is just waiting for you to mess up. He's just up there with a lightning bolt, and he's waiting to strike you down, and that's what the wrath of God means. That's actually not what the Bible describes God's wrath as. Again, he says he's slow to anger. He's abounding in compassion. But we can't overcorrect the problem, right? Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, we're not going to read it, but this is the most extensive place in the New Testament where God's wrath is discussed at length. And the way Paul portrays the wrath of God is actually God turning sinners over to themselves. He's saying, you want to act like that? Like, I'm, I'm compassionate. Come back to me. Come back to me. But I'm just going to let you do what you want to do. That's part of God's wrath. That we would just live out our own selfish desires. But we don't need to overcorrect. God must execute judgment and justice for wrong done in his creation. Just like in Genesis chapter 6, a flood is coming that will end all of the brokenness in humanity. And are you rescued from that flood? And the only way you're rescued in the New Testament is through the blood of Jesus. To know who he is and to live out your life. But apart from the saving work of God, we are alienated from him. The Bible says we're enemies of God. We are dead in our sin. And we have the natural proclivity as humans to sin. That's what's naturally in us because of what happens in Genesis chapter 3. This proclivity is defined typically as a tendency to do something, often something we shouldn't. And our natural proclivity as humans is to act like the list that Paul is using. So let's look at the text. and Let's look at the, the list he says in 5 and then again what he says further down the list. Sexual immorality. Just to unpack some of these so we're all on the same page with what Paul is talking about that we need to put to death. Sexual immorality is any sexual act outside of the design of marriage between a husband and a wife. He says impurity put to death. That's lustful thinking. He says passion. And in the original language, this is something you, you can't stop thinking about it and it's negative. You can't get it out of your mind. You're passionate about it. Paul's saying you need to put that to death. Evil desires is a desire for what's forbidden. This is, again, natural in all of us. Covetousness, which is wanting what others have. Do you have a desire for what others have and you're looking to get that? Idolatry is anything that substitutes for God. Anything you put in the number one space instead of God is considered idolatry. He goes down the list later and he says anger. It's a feeling of annoyance, displeasure, or hostility. We need to put that to death and do away with it. Wrath, which is actually a different word in the original text than the, the word used in verse 6. This wrath means uh, anger boiling up inside of you. So again, God's not describing his own anger like that, but it's saying we as our flesh have that anger and wrath inside of us. Malice is the intention to do evil. Slander is saying something false to make somebody else look bad. 
Saying something false to make somebody else look bad. And then obscene talk, put that to death. That's less about using bad language and more about our words being harmful rather than helpful. Right? That your words that you say about other people, about situations, actually would do more harm than they would do help. And Paul is saying, you need to put those things to death. And as humans, this is kind of our natural proclivity. Again, without the grace of Jesus, we will do these things. Now, uh, we're not going to all do these things at the same time. Even if you don't know Jesus, it's not like we're pirates because that list just feels like that's all that the pirates would do. We're all these things. They would kind of lean into acting this way. Uh, but for a lot of us, because of our culture and our society, we've grown up in environments that has helped us manage, control, or hide our sin. Right? Even if you didn't know Jesus, or maybe you grew up in church and you did know Jesus, what the environment around us says, well, like you, you're not supposed to be evil to people. Anybody would kind of say that. But a lot of the times our culture has helped us say, okay, well, we'll just manage it. As long as you're not as evil as that person, you're good. Or you're going to hide your sin. You're not going to show it out to other people. But what Paul is getting to, to this church is he's saying, listen, I don't want you to manage. I don't want you to control. I don't want you to hide your sin. I want you to kill it and put it to death. And actually, that's what Jesus has done on the cross. He's put it to death. And Paul is suggesting here, because we are in Christ, those of us that follow Jesus, these things are put to death, that you are hidden in Christ, and you need to start living out your true identity. Let's continue in verse 9. In your Bibles, he continues to say, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the Creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. About 20 years ago, I ended up going down to Mexico. Uh, are you guys familiar with uh, the mission One Mission? Some of you guys have been down on a trip with One Mission down to Mexico where you go down with a group and you build a home for a family in the community that, that needs a home, and, and you're there for about three days. And so this was before One Mission had started, but it was the same group of uh, individuals. And so we went down to Mexico across the border. This is before One Mission kind of had a hub and like kind of decent places to sleep. Uh, you just would bring a tent. And so we would bring a tent, and you're down there for three days, and you pitch your tent, and you're building this house for this family in need. And it helps you realize so much what we have here in America. Coming back, there, you're building this little cinder block home, two-bedroom home for like a family of seven. They don't even have running water or plumbing, but you're building a roof over their head, a home for them. And so you're out there, and you're getting dirty, and you're there to work. And so it's dirty, it's dusty, we're mixing cement in wheelbarrows, and then we're putting cinder blocks on. It's hard work, and it's good hard work. And then we'd go back to our campsite, and we'd sleep on the floor in our tent, and then you would come back. So I came back after three days of that, just really enjoying the environment and working hard. And I come home, and my wife is like, what happened to you? Because my face is just covered in dirt. My clothes are filthy. It's sweaty, it's hot, it's just nasty. So I get in the shower, and it's like the best shower I've ever had in my life, right? Like I'm just washing all the dirt out of my hair. It's everywhere. And then I get out of the shower. Now, what would happen if I got clean in that moment? I get out of the shower, and my old nasty clothes are on the ground, and I put them back on. 
Would that make any sense? That would be kind of silly, wouldn't it? That wouldn't make any sense. But that's exactly what some of us are doing. We've come to Christ. He's cleansed us from our sin. He's rescued us. We've been baptized into likeness. Our our sins are going down into the water, and they're coming back up, and we're free. And we have this new life. And you know what we do? We step out, and we put these old clothes back on. And Christ is saying, there's a better way. I gave you a new set of clothes that you could be free, that you could be clean. But some of us are tricked into just putting those old sets of clothes on and we're walking around and we're confused at the Christian life and it doesn't seem to make sense. We keep falling into these sins and Paul is saying, those are dead. Put on these new ones. And even in the midst of verses 9 through 11, what Paul is really saying here is this, these three verses are a bridge to what a whole new humanity looks like as you're found in Jesus. That these orders are gone away. That in the original context, there was kind of these pecking orders of, are you a slave or are you a Scythian? Are you a barbarian? What does this actually look like? And Paul is saying, because of Jesus, those things are flattened. It's level at the foot of the cross. You don't have to live into those cultural realities anymore. Tom Wright says it this way. He says, the ancient world, just like the modern, was an elaborate network of prejudice, suspicion, and arrogance, so ingrained as to be thought natural and normal. These distinctions that Paul lists here, he declares with one breathtaking challenge, have become irrelevant in Christ. And we no longer have to pay attention to those different pecking orders as we live out our freedom in Jesus. I need, a, I need the, the kids up here. I need a question. I got this picture, and I want you to know, if you, have you ever done this before at a playground? Do they have these in playgrounds anymore? Yes, you've done it before? Yeah, yes. Thumbs up in the back. Okay. Um, what do you call, I'm just out of curiosity, what do you call this apparatus here? Yes. A seesaw. Did anybody else think teeter-totter? Half the room, quarter of the room. Okay, I don't know where you're from. Seesaw is the correct answer. No, there's no correct answer. You can call it seesaw or teeter-totter. Do you remember these things when you were a kid or if you've been on these things? Uh, one side, you go down and you sit like this and somebody's in the air and then you push off and you go up and you kind of take a ride back and forth. This is what Paul is saying in the text. Here's what he's saying. He's saying because who you are in Jesus, you've made that decision for Jesus, you are changed, you are in Christ, your identity is now found in him, not in any of those categories of any other things. And one side of the teeter-totter is your position in Christ, your identity in him. And because of that, the other side of the teeter-totter is your behavior. Because what's true of you, you can now live out your behavior, all these things he's about to list. And so you need to understand, this isn't this list that we're about to look at. It's not like you do these things in your own effort. You do these things in your own power. That would lead to legalism. You need both sides of this teeter-totter. If you only do the side of the behavior of doing all the things he's about to list, then you begin to run into that problem of legalism and working your way to God's approval. That's not good. Or if you only do this side and you just sit in Christ, but your behavior doesn't change, you kind of go, well, do you really understand who you are in Jesus? You need both sides. And what Paul is going to suggest is this goes back and forth. To live out this new life, to put on these new clothes, to be free in Christ, you need to know your behavior and your identity in Jesus. And because of that, that will help you live out what Jesus is calling you to live out. So let's talk about that list in verse 12. He says this, put on then. 
as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's talk through this list so we understand what this side of the teeter-totter actually means, or the seetal, actually means as we do our best to live and walk out our faith in Jesus. First, we need compassionate hearts, is what he tells us. A compassionate heart is somebody that has concern for the sufferings of others, that you weep with those who weep, that when you heard the news this week of what happened in Texas, something in your gut, something in your soul cried out to God and said, this isn't okay, that you have a compassionate heart to the people around you, that you have kindness, he says, put on kindness, which is goodness and generosity, that you have a generous sensitivity towards others that's triggered by a genuine care for their feelings and their desires, that you would have kindness with the people you interact with, that you would put on humility. This checks the incessant quest to attain honor and rise to kind of that pecking order that we just talked about. In the ancient world, honor what we would equate today as kind of prestige or dignity was considered to be a scarce commodity. People constantly vied with others to attain this glory and engage in a constant game of one-upmanship. That was kind of normal for the culture, and it's kind of normal for some of our cultures in our work environments and things like that. And the pursuit of honor had an outward expression of arrogance. Self-boasting, for example, was considered an act of honor, but it creates discord in the church and in our communities and should be regarded as an act of dishonor. Humility always allows us to serve others without caring whether it is noticed or not. Paul's saying, put on humility. Humility leads the way in the midst of your new identity, who you are in Jesus. You should be humble. Put on a compassionate heart, kindness, humility. Put on gentleness is the next word he uses which is meekness, this kind of yielded power, power under control. You have power, but you're gentle in how you use it, the willingness to make allowances for others. And then he says patience. Put on patience. It refrains from exacting revenge against enemies and is willing to endure wrongs. How is your heart doing in these areas? Do you have a compassionate heart? Do you have kindness? Do you have humility? Do you have gentleness? Do you have patience? And then in verses 13 through 14, Paul gives us three challenges. Because you don't just roll over and happen to have these things. Just like the seesaw or the teeter-totter, you have to push up on these behaviors. You don't just roll out of bed and have a compassionate heart because you're new in Christ. You have to work towards it. I love this quote from Dallas Willard. He talks about grace not being opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. And so there are effort, there's effort involved in putting on something new and putting on these things that Paul gives us. And again, he challenges us with three things on the back end of this passage in 13 and 14. The first thing, he challenges us to bear with one another. To bear with one another. And again, if you've been in community any length of time, whether it's your family or your church, you better realize we got to bear with one another because we're going to hurt one another. We're going to say things that are confusing to one another. Do you have the patience and endurance to bear with one another around you 
Or are you like, no, that's too much. I'm out of here. What Christ is saying is you put on these new clothes of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Part of that is bearing with one another in love. Second thing he admonishes us to do is to forgive one another. And I think what Paul is getting at is to not be stingy with our forgiveness. Right? Sometimes it's easy to forgive if it's not a big offense and there's no problem there. But what Paul is telling this community is like, don't be stingy with your forgiveness. See, the culture would say, listen, I will forgive you if you do X, Y, and Z, and then maybe I'll offer my forgiveness to you. But what Paul is saying is like, the the follower of Jesus, the believer, extends forgiveness no matter what because of what Jesus has forgiven in you. Now, don't confuse forgiveness and forgetfulness Right? Because there's still a thread that goes, okay, I can still forgive you, but I can put up a boundary if you're going to continue to hurt me or abuse me. I can put up a fair boundary and still forgive you in my heart. The idea of forgiveness is that you wouldn't be harboring this anger or this bitterness, that you can release that to the Lord because he's what he's forgiven you. This is what Paul is driving to us as a new community to say, listen, you need to bear with one another and you need to forgive one another. And then the third thing he says is to love one another. To love one another. And there's always, there's always a cost to love. Every single time. Love moves towards the other. Love dies. That's what Christ is calling us to do. In our new humanity, in these new clothes that we get to put on, is to bear with one another, to forgive one another, and to love one another. And he says in the text, love is kind of this bond that ties all of these virtues together, that list that we just read. We cannot truly exhibit compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience without love. It will not work. Love maintains the balance but brings all the other virtues into perfection as it harmonizes those things. So how do we do this? Like, how do we continue to put to death that list that he gave us at the beginning and then put on this list that he gave us at the end? He gives us a suggestion for what this looks like to put off the old and put on the new. Let's continue in verse 15. He says, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving, in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father through him. So what does it look like to live this out? A couple things that Paul gives us in kind of this closing, and then what he's going to do in the rest of the chapter, he's going to give specific examples of what this looks like in different contexts. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. What rules your heart? Like, what's really going on in your heart? I know for me, sometimes what rules my heart is fear. Sometimes what rules my heart is shame. Sometimes what rules my heart is anxiety. Those are all things that are kind of dirty clothes that I just kind of naturally go back to and put on. Because of the circumstances around me, because what I'm hearing from other people, I can often have my heart ruled by those things. And what... Paul is saying is let the peace of Christ rule your heart. Well, how do you do that? I don't want to be ruled by fear. I don't want to be ruled by anxiety. I don't want to be ruled by shame. How do I take off those clothes and put on the peace of Christ? Paul gives us a couple suggestions here. In verse 15, 
Again, he says, let the peace of Christ rule your hearts to which indeed you were called into one body. The first thing that we need help with is to understand to change from putting to death and putting to life is we need each other. We need community. And I know I, I kind of went off. These are kind of the same three things that Jesus or that Paul uses uh, two weeks ago when he's talking about how do you live out your faith? You need the church. You need people. And it's really hard and it's really annoying and it's really tough. But you cannot put on all those things in love without other people. We need one body. We need to be in connection with one another, with other people, doing our best to live this out. As he continues in the text, he says, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ dwell in you richly to take residence up inside of you. I have no shot to let the peace of Christ rule over my heart if I'm not spending time in God's word. It just won't happen. When I feel shame, when I feel uh, embarrassment, when I feel anxiety begin to creep in and begin to own my heart, what do I need to do? I need to go back to the Bible. I need to read this thing every day. And you need to read this thing, not because it's some list that you have to do, but because that's how you get the peace of Christ to rule those other things. So when I feel shame, I go back to reading who I am in Jesus and that peace washes over me. When I feel fear, I read about the God that controls all the heavens and all the earth, and that peace begins to rule over me. When I feel anxiety and stress, I go back to God's word to remind myself of what is true. Are you doing that? We have to be people in community. We have to be people of God's word. If we're going to live out and walk out what God is calling us to live and walk out. And then he also says in the back end of that, Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And not only do we need to be in community, in a church community, not only need to be reading the word, but we also need to be teaching and singing with one another. Right? That's why this community, this gathering on Sunday is so important. Because we need to be reminded of what is true as we sing those truths to one another. God changes our hearts and the peace of Christ begins to rule over us. That's the heart by why we sing with one another. That's why we teach the Bible. To learn what it means to put off the old and put on the new. And then the last things we see in all these five verses, if you've noticed it, verse 15, verse 16, verse 17 There's something that kind of holds these things together, and that's the word thankfulness or being thankful, having this gratitude of understanding that you're thankful that you have the Bible, that you're thankful that you can be taught the word, you can read the word whenever you want. You're thankful that you have this community as messy it is. You're thankful that we can sit under teaching. You're thankful that you can sing with one another. You can't do that everywhere in the world. So we need to have an attitude of thankfulness in the midst of trusting God to kill the things that we don't need to put on anymore and to put on love. That's our heart. We're going to see again next week as Paul picks up the text as he gives specific examples of what this gets looked like played out in that culture and what it means for us. Let's pray together. Father, thanks that we can be made new because of you, that no longer do we have to put on those old clothes, but you have rescued us through the blood of Christ, through your sacrifice on the cross, that we can be made clean, 
I pray that you would help us understand what that looks like as we kind of walk out our faith that we'd be putting on kindness and a compassionate heart and humility and gentleness so that we could be a light to people around us, that we could look like where we're from, that it would be clear that people see Jesus as they interact with us. We need you to be able to do that. We need your spirit to convict us. We need your church and our community to encourage us. We need to sing that you would change us from the inside out. Father, we ask that you would do it. We pray it in your name. Amen.